Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Angel Olsen has a voice that can fill a room, and now she's selling them out across the country. I'm Greg Kahn. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Singer-songwriter Angel Olsen joins us in the studio. And then we talk about a singer no one can agree about, Lana Del Rey. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, Jim, we're going to talk about this new Lana Del Rey record. As we mentioned, a lot of controversy about this artist, a very polarizing figure. A lot of people may remember her from that 2012 appearance at Saturday Night Live, which was basically her national coming out party. Huge controversy, kind of a stiff wooden performance in the opinion of many people. And despite that, she's gone on to sell over 5 million records. We'll be talking about that later in the show, but first, some music news. A song about that elusive thing called time is the most popular song in the land. For the second week in a row, the number one song in America is Cyndi Lauper's Time After Time. Greg, that's a familiar voice to millions. It is, of course, Casey Kasem, who died recently at the age of 82, a voice so many people know from his many years hosting America's Top 40. You know, an interesting contribution to music history. The idea of a top 40 countdown, a countdown of the hits backwards to number one, was already old in the summer of 1970 when Casey Kasem hit upon the idea of bringing it back to radio. These shows had been huge, shows like Your Hit Parade in the 50s. He brought it back in 1970 and had an incredible run until 2009 when Ryan Seacrest took over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Casey Kasem, it has been said, did not like rock and roll or pop music. He preferred the sound of silence in his office, he often said. Uh, What he loved, however, was storytelling. He said, quote, I was drawing on the Arabic tradition of storytelling one-upmanship when he would do the spiels in between songs. He was born in Detroit, but his family had immigrated from Lebanon, so that was a part of his background. Many people will miss him. Uh, Also was the voice of Shaggy on (laughs) Scooby-Doo. I wonder what's behind that curtain, Scoob. A shower? No, it's not a shower. Now I go in there and take a look. (laughs) What are you, a dog or a mouse? (laughs) How do you like that? Man's best friend's a mouse. Jimmy Scott is another figure we want to say farewell to, Jim. He died at the age of 88 of a heart attack a few days ago. Little Jimmy Scott, as he was known, he was only 4 feet 11 inches tall and had a very distinctive boyish voice. And that was because of a rare genetic condition called Kalman syndrome, which caused his body to stop maturing before he reached puberty. Yes, so he had this androgynous voice, but there was an incredible amount of power and passion in it. And in the late 40s, he started performing with a lot of jazz and then later R&B bands. You know, he was a, an artist on records by Lionel Hampton, Charles Mingus, Sarah Vaughan, Charlie Parker. 
often uncredited, though, even though he was considered one of the great singers of that era, not many people knew who he was, though artists like Marvin Gaye, Frankie Valli, Nancy Wilson all cited him as an influence. He made a late career comeback, though, and it all began when he sang at a funeral for one of his friends, the great songwriter Doc Pomus in the early 90s. He sang Someone to Watch Over Me. And it so happened that Seymour Stein, the head of Sire Records, was there and signed him to a record deal based on that moving performance. Jimmy Scott started recording regularly once again in the 90s. His album All the Way got nominated for a Grammy Award. Lou Reed became a huge fan. He had Jimmy Scott sing on his Magic and Loss album. Scott performed on the soundtrack to Philadelphia. He became an actor in movies like Chelsea Walls. But the song I want to highlight his career with is from the final episode of David Lynch's television series, Twin Peaks. It's called Sycamore Trees, with lyrics by Lynch and music by Angelo Badalamente. Here's little Jimmy Scott on Sound Opinions. I've got idea, man. You take me for a walk Under the sycamore tree The dark trees that blow, baby In the dark trees that blow And I'll see Little Jimmy Scott with sycamore trees from the famous backwards talking scene in Twin Peaks, dead at the age of 88. Listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Forgiven, Forgotten by our guest this week, Angel Olson. At 27, she's already a veteran of the indie music scene. She was born in St. Louis and got her first big break as a backup singer for Will Oldham, otherwise known as Bonnie Prince Billy. She relocated to Chicago and released her first EP in 2012, 
and then came her first full-length album called Halfway Home. And it was critically acclaimed, but you could tell she was just figuring out her song's potential at the time. That album had some pretty simple arrangements, Greg, uh, just Angel Olsen and a guitar, but with a voice that many have compared to greats like Roy Orbison and songwriting that's dared to nod at Bob Dylan, her half of the equation packed a powerful punch. Now on Burn Your Fire for No Witness, Angel's second studio album, the arrangements have really been beefed up, and she treated us to a live performance during a recent visit to the studio. But first, we wanted to know what music inspired Angel Olsen when she was growing up. Yeah, I feel like I was inspired by a lot of different elements around me. I had, you know, my sister was closer to my age, and she had introduced me to a lot of, like, radio music, and I was listening to radio music and also stuff my mom and dad listened to, so the range was huge. And, you know, I think the one thing that's striking about your records is that, you know, your so-called indie rock or what or whatever, I don't think people often associate indie rock with great vocalists, but you've got a very strong voice. Did you Were you always aware of that? Did you ever have vocal training? I know you probably had, I think you had some theater, you said, in your background, right? You did a little bit Not of that? Not really. I, I never really had proper training. I was always part of the choir. I always wanted to be in theater, but I never, I guess I, I liked performing more. And I was more of like a person who spent many hours at home growing up recording on tapes, on cassettes, and then, you know, figuring out harmonies and just playing around with recording. And that's how I got to sort of study my own voice, mm-hmm. you know. You know, I'm curious about the reaction you would get when you were playing in St. Louis. Uh, was it a, was it sort of a supportive scene, kind of an, giving you the notion, hey, I can do this, I, you know, maybe I can take this to the next step? What was that like, getting, getting out there and actually performing in front of people? I mean, it was hard at first. But at the same time, I had been singing since I was a little girl, and my whole family was very supportive of it. And, you know, I took piano lessons and guitar lessons for a little while. And I don't know, I guess I guess my family just really pushed me to go with it, which I'm really thankful for, because a lot of times parents don't do that. If your kid's an artist, they're, you know, they're afraid. <laughs> Get so. a real job. <laughs> you know, one of the things, Angel, that, that Greg and I have been fascinated by lately, we got to interview the director of that Academy Award winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, mm-hmm. which is about some of the great backing vocalists. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people in the indie rock world probably first saw you on stage with Bonnie Prince Billy, right? Yeah. Singing behind. What are the thoughts about being a backing vocalist and just singing to be part of an ensemble versus now leading your own band and being out front and center? You know, I have to say, um, you're earning so much by practicing your voice on that level and learning how to, in the moment, adjust your voice to someone else's and using it as a tool. You're gaining a lot of information and uh, you're learning a lot about your voice and what you can do when you're singing someone else's songs, more more so than your own sometimes. Mm. And I think you can stretch your voice by observing other people and learning how to work well with others and actually holding back sometimes or being more about mixing well with others other than being so concerned with your own voice standing out all the time. Because sometimes the way to make things blend well and for everyone to be happy and excited about what's happening in the moment is to to be minimal and to be mindful of that. And I think, I don't know, just working with groups like Bonnie Prince Billy and the Cairo Gang has definitely shown me what I can do with my voice and what in you know in certain songs is appropriate in my mind and other times not 
called for. Well, and what you were saying about performing a cover song lets you be free to be somebody else. So you can try on these different emotional approaches too, right? Yeah, and I guess in some ways that's what theater does. So if you like theater and you like doing that, then you can expand your sound and you can uh, learn about different ways of expressing an emotion. Yeah. Did you feel like you were in some ways a persona or playing a persona when you would when you started recording your own music, releasing your first EP, things like that? Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like there's a there are many characters in um each different song that I write or each different performance that I have and you know, sometimes I perform one song very quietly live and it's it's just the sound of the room. I just decided, you know, we're going to play this really quietly now and then it, play the same song the next night, totally different. And it and I feel like on a recording, it's, <laughs> you know, it's forever. It's like a permanent uh, character. But in a live performance, you get to change it and mm. you get to, um, yeah, you get to change those characters. It's very Dylan-esque what you just said. <laughs> 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 I like that idea of like that it can always, it can, it can change depending on your mood or, you know, who you're, you know, how you're feeling that day, which I don't think is often done when, when people perform live. Yeah, think, hello, Cleveland. Yeah. I, feel, <laughs> I feel like it's done, but maybe people don't talk about it. I feel, I feel kind of silly because I'm getting all cerebral about my writing in front of you guys. But I'm also <laughs> like, this is what makes it interesting for me. So. Mm-hmm. Before we continue the conversation, we're here with Angel Olsen and her band, uh, Josh on drums, Stuart on guitar, Emily on bass. Uh, how about a song, Angel? Sure. i 
Lights out from Angel Olsen, live on Sound Opinions. After a break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more songs and conversation with Angel. Then, the divisive pop singer Lana Del Rey is back with Ultraviolence. I quit my dreaming the moment that I found you. I started dancing just to be around you. Here's to thinking that it all meant so much more I kept my mouth shut and opened up the door I wanted nothing but for this to be I lost my dream, I lost my reason all 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with my co-host Jim DeRigatis, and we've been speaking with St. Louis-born, Asheville, North Carolina-based artist Angel Olson. Now, Angel started her career recording very spare and intimate performances on our first two releases, Strange Cacti and Halfway Home. And now, with her newest album, Burn Your Fire for No Witness, we have Angel going in a different direction. She's playing with a full band. So during our conversation, I asked her about that sonic transition. I guess I was just ready for it. Um, <laughs> I was ready to learn how to communicate my ideas to other people, and you know, I wanted to make my older songs new again, and I wanted to bring life to things that I, you know, got tired of playing alone. And honestly, playing alone sometimes is really cool because you can control where things go and you can change things in the middle of it. But at the same time, performing with a band is really cool because. You get to interact, and sometimes I don't. I guess it's just it's really interesting to share the the moment on stage, like in performance, when everything kind of falls in place really nicely. You get to share that moment versus having that to yourself and it being super self indulgent. And it's a different experience. And I was ready for sharing that experience. And I get to perform with musicians like Josh and Stuart and Emily, who could all be doing other things. And it's like a dream for me to be able to do this with them. So, Well, I think the biggest obstacle to starting a band is finding people that you're compatible with. Did you have this idea in your head for a while that you wanted to work with a band? Did you try out other people? And how did it work that you ended up working with Josh, Stewart, and Emily? Well, I worked with Josh at a cafe, and uh, we talked about music every now and then, and then he heard the record or heard Halfway Home at some point, and we communicated about meeting up and going over some songs and just trying it out. When I went to meet up with him, it felt really natural. And then he introduced me to Stuart, who I'd met, I guess, uh, casually a few times. And Stuart also, him and him and Stuart are in a band called Lion Limb. And so they kind of already have a, a communication with each other. And I don't know, just I felt like really lucky. And I just had been working with a band like Bonnie Principally and the Cairo Gang for so long that maybe it was that I just developed how to talk to people about what I wanted. And I'm still figuring it out. You know, I don't play drums, so I don't know how to make all the drum sounds and explain like what I want for a certain part of a song all the time. But it definitely is a process and you have to be ready to to work for that process. So Now the band's based in Chicago, but you're living in Asheville, North Carolina now. Is that right? Well, that was right, except now we've all kind of moved around. Josh lives in Louisville. Um, I live in Asheville. Stuart lives in Nashville. Emily, do you know where you live yet? <laughs> We're just not... In the van right yeah, now. Yeah. The van is our is our house right now. Yeah. So, Was there a lot of, uh, of rehearsing of the songs on this new album before? Because I know you recorded it quickly, like 10 days. So... We had been playing halfway songs from Halfway Home and Strange Cacti as a three-piece, mm. uh, me, Josh, and Stuart. And then um, I had introduced some of the newer material to them along the way. And so we had practice at these songs before getting into the studio and, of course, had, like, a session with each other talking about sounds and trying to, like, figure out what we, what sounds we were hearing in these songs. And I just wanted to establish, like, what 
what I wanted, what we all wanted for this record before we got into this room and the time was ticking, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I got, you know, I got super stressed out because when you're under pressure like that, you're like, you sometimes lose your voice. And so I got sick the first yeah. two days. But w- we worked around it and it was really a cool experience to finally be able to hear what we sounded like in mm-hmm. a good studio. Uh, so, so some of the songs were played live before you ever got to the studio. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of... Because you learn stuff maybe, about stars. your material yeah. that you don't learn anywhere else when you play it in front of people. Right. Sure. But also, like, you learn stuff about your songs when you're in a studio and you can finally hear them clearly. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah. being in a studio is so, sometimes so much better than playing at a festival or, like, a venue because you just have no idea and you're trying so hard to not let it affect you. That's cool. And you, you introduced a lot of changes to the way you approach, you know, your your recordings. I mean, having the band involved was a step, and then also working with a producer who I, I guess you don't have a a long-term relationship with. It was kind of like, okay, we're going to get this guy who's worked on some pretty important records over the years. You know, St. Vincent, busy. Joanna yeah. Newsom, John Congleton. How did that happen that you worked with Congleton? Was that your choice, and what was it like actually working with him? It was really good. Yeah, he was kind of like a doctor. He started off very quiet, just asking simple questions made us feel comfortable, and um, <laughs> I gave him like a basically like a piece of paper for every song and the details of <laughs> what I was going for, what we wanted, you oh, know, wow. for each song, so that he had a reference for every single thing that we did. And then we kind of built up from there, and that was really cool because he gave me a lot of leeway to do the things that I wanted to do that, and make the sounds that I wanted to make. Because a lot of times you're with a producer and they're just like. Uh, let's not try that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's cool that he allowed me to experiment. And there were some times where he was, like, very... You could tell he he wasn't into trying an idea, but then we tried it, and, you know, he would change his mind and be like, wow, I didn't hear... You know, I didn't understand that's what you were talking about. So that's kind of cool to work with somebody who's open with your uh, idea and just allowing you to uh, experiment. What made you want to work with him, though? We sort of had these, like, conferences on the phone that were kind of funny, and he just seemed like he he was a, a, a fan before we had approached him about it, which is always a good sign because you want somebody to want to hear you for that mm-hmm. many hours. <laughs> They're going to be working with you. So, How about another song, Angel? All right. I feel so lonesome I could cry But instead I'll pass the time Sitting lonely with somebody Someone out there who believes 
Listening to Sound Opinions, and that was High Five by Angel Olson and her band, Emily, Josh, and Stuart. Great stuff. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, so you blew my mind a couple minutes ago by talking about this one sheet you were able to give <laughs> producer John Congleton for every song. And and it's rare. I mean, Greg and I interview so many musicians who, who uh, I mean, what they do is make music, right? But they can't talk about it, right? So the, the fact that you could verbalize and put into a concept what you wanted each song to be. Give us, for example, that song, High Five. What were, what were your ideas? What did you give Congleton? This is what I'm going <laughs> I for. I can't remember. <laughs> I think I remember it being like, at first it was an acoustic guitar or something, and it was too dry, and I was like, that's not the way acoustic sounds in a room. It's supposed to fill a room with warmth. You know, like, you know, it's supposed to be uh, not so close to the guitar. It's supposed to be, you know, heard. Mm-hmm but not, like, uncomfortably. He had a lot of patience for all of my uh, poetic words for describing <laughs> things. Let's just say that. You know, you hear people say things like, I want it to sound like a waterfall or, you know, like, yeah. like have no idea what you mean. Or, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with, like, saying, like, describing what kinds of room sounds uh, you hear on records. Like, you know, in certain records you hear a very dry drum sound and it's very upfront. Yeah. And other records, it's a very live sound, and it's very apparent, and you can hear the room. And it's it's got a, a different kind of feeling to it, mm-hmm. like you're there seeing it live. And I wanted something like that for some songs. And, you know, I think it doesn't hurt to reference, you know, a drum part on a song that you really like, as long as you're not, you know, like using that exact thing. You know, yeah. I feel like it's a good reference to, well, to listen to good records and know why you like them. You know, I'm glad you said that because I was just thinking when I was hearing that song again, and it's great to hear it here live in the room. You know, first of all, the Hank Williams reference at the st- at the top, I don't, that, that was just cool. But I also love the sound of that record. And you you got you get these comparisons, which is, must be super daunting. But that was total Roy Orbison in a lot of ways for me. I was like, and I mean that as a extreme. Con- I, I'm hugely a fan of his stuff, but that drama and the the way you're using your voice on that song. Was that at all part of that little um, one-sheet description really. to a Congleton, you know? You know, I feel like I've, I always get that comparison, or at least I've noticed it a lot. I yeah. Know, I 
strange because I'm a girl, which is cool. I mean, that's a, I, I'm not offended by it. It might be but, the sunglasses you're wearing. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> Do you know the story about his sunglasses? I think he left his glasses at home that day, and all, all he could see with were his sunglasses. So, mm-hmm. And everyone thought it was so cool. Oh, he had prescription sunglasses. So it became, yeah. the, yeah. became the trademark. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I, but I, and I, I read that a lot, and I go, God, it's ridiculous to be compared to like Roy Orbison or Patsy Yeah, but Klein there's an audaciousness with but, starting a song like yeah. that with a Hank Williams quote. I mean, you know, you know, you know you're, you're It wasn't saying, intentional, hey, critics, to be uh, honest. I was like, mm-hmm. I know I've heard that before, but it's going in a different direction. So, <laughs> Well, it, it, what you were saying, though, about, I think, taking classic records, hearing what you respond to them and, and and then taking it somewhere your own yeah. is what I'm hearing there. That's you cool. Know? And that's a pretty high standard. I mean, it's a very high bar you're setting there, you know? It's yeah, like, I guess so. Do you ever think about that sort of stuff? Like uh, why you do this and where do you fit in? And the, do you, do you, are you, cause I, a few artists will say to you, I want to make classic records that are going to stand up you know, 20 years from now. Somebody's going to hear this record and say it's a great record, you mm-hmm. know. And then other 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 ones aren't even thinking. They're, they're just hoping to make it to the next song. But are you? do you ever have that sort of longer view of, of what you're hoping to create, you know, create when you make art and make music? Um, I hope that it would be something I would listen to if I heard it, that I would want to listen to that and for it to be not necessarily, you know, like a completely honest piece of work, but... At, I guess what I mean is like a uh, something that has got heart in it and something that has thoughts in it that are real. And I don't ever want to create anything that doesn't have those two things. And I think that's a pretty high standard as well. Mm-hmm, sure. Are you your own worst critic, do you feel? Probably. Like, do you ever listen to any of your stuff from the past and go, oh, man, I, I wish I'd Yeah, not but I also, that. it's kind of cool because then I get to hear how I've changed and I think it's best not to psychoanalyze the past and to just move forward. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious about the lyrics, uh, Angel. You know, there's there's pain on here. There's anger. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a wide gamut of emotions. And and I've read uh, about you, you know, touring with Will Oldham, mm-hmm. Bonnie Prince Billy, and and of course he's famous for these different masks he puts on. He's an actor as much as he's a musician. You're out there. Your name's on it. <laughs> you got to own it. Does that leave you feeling vulnerable at any point? Because you're really not really, because I don't really feel connected to the material in the way that um, it's expressed. It's it's music, you know. It's mm. supposed to be exaggerated. Theater is supposed to be exaggerated. You know, at this point, it's like I've seen, I've been singing these songs for so long, I couldn't tell you where they began. I ah. feel like mm. a lot of it is just, how do you say, uh, I feel like this is really the best way for me to, to describe it because I'm often asked this question. It's not a new one. So... Let's just say it's like um, when you see a movie uh, or a film and there's a dramatic climax to that movie and it seems maybe unrealistic or it's just like you have to make it somehow realistic and in a very short period of time, you need to make sure that the audience knows what's happening and and in certain situations you have to kind of exaggerate certain things and I feel like that's what happens to me in writing. Mm. And so... When I'm performing, in order to make something new again or to get lost in the material again or feel like I can connect with it, I try to fall into some sort of character while performing it. What about that initial impulse, though? What inspires you to sit down and write? Anything. I feel like my writing is constantly changing because now I'm traveling all the time. So it's it could be anything. It could be 
a film I just saw or, I don't know, um, being around a new group of people or, you know, it's, it, it really depends on so many different things that it's hard to say one specific thing, you know, inspires a song. There are some days where I come up with a melody. Um, for example, the song White Fire, I came up with a melody for when I was in Dublin just fooling around with a guitar. And then two months later, I was in New York driving back with a friend to Chicago, and I wrote this long, what I thought was a poem, and then I got home and a couple weeks later applied them to each other, and they fit pretty quickly. Mm. And that wasn't a planned process. And I think it's kind of uh, funny how the mind works like that. Like it's designed to show you yourself sometimes. When you're a writer, at least that's, I mean, myself as a writer, I feel that way. You were going to play White Fire for us, yeah. right? Excellent. And this one you're going to do on your own? Yeah. If you can, it's really long. Is that okay? No, we hate it. <laughs> no, okay, yeah, of course. What a treat. Thank you. All right. Let's do it. Everything is tragic It all just falls apart But when I look into your eyes It pieces up my heart If I only had an answer To put it all to bed I wish sometimes I could take back every word I've said I walk back in the night alone, got caught up in my song Forgot where I'd been sleeping None of the lights were on I heard my mother thinking me Right back into my bird I laughed so loud inside myself It all began to hurt So I turned on a picture show I disappeared the lines As memories came flooding in The tears blew up my eyes Above, 
I look for you or someone who can still remind me of the When it's all here and it's right now, and you're not hung over. And light and young, fierce and light and young. When you don't know that you're wrong or just how wrong you are. Feet are always heavy as I'm inching toward the door. I thought we'd leave us for ourselves a hundred times before. But I guess we're always leaving, even when it looks the same. And it eases me somehow to know that even this will change. Still got some light in you, then go before it's gone. Burn your fire for no witness. It's the only way it's done. Fierce and light and young. Fierce and light and young. Hit the ground. Ooh.
Thank you. Wow, lovely stuff. White Fire solo from Angel Olsen on Sound Opinions. We want to thank Angel Olsen and the band Emily, Josh, and Stuart. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. I need advice, it's true But I won't hear it from you To watch videos of Angel Olsen or to catch up on previous episodes of the show, visit our website, soundopinions.org. Have a comment on this week's show or anything else in the musical universe? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, we review the latest from pop noir singer Lana Del Rey. Could be Apply all the sides you've seen Or you could be the only one Who knows the truth of me Am I the ugly one It's easy to see past All of the kindness that you've offered me It doesn't last It's just a thought I had If I could show you how I came to be Share my body and my mind with you That's all over now Did what I had to do Cause you're so far past me now Share my body and my life with you That's way over now There's not more I can do You're so famous now Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Cruel World from the new Lana Del Rey record, Ultraviolence. Del Rey started her career as a New York singer-songwriter, Lizzie Grant, fairly conventional, and then she released an album in 2010 with uh, music industry veteran David Kahn before pulling it off the market. She sort of reinvented herself in uh, subsequent years. Uh, She came across as the gangster Nancy Sinatra. That's what some people were calling her. And she got signed to Interscope Records, a big label behind people like Lady Gaga and Eminem and U2. And there was a lot of hype before that 2012 record came out, Born to Die. She made that Saturday Night Live appearance early that year. A lot of critics got on social media, said she looked wooden and bored up there on stage, and uh, it wasn't getting off to a very good start. A lot of people thought this career was going to get trashed before it even began. But that record just held up. Over the course of the year, it sold well over 3 million copies. It was one of the biggest sellers of 2012. And now Born to Die is over 5 million worldwide. So she proved all those critics wrong, at least in the commercial sales department. 
Now she's back with a big follow-up record called Ultraviolence, and uh, she made a left turn with this one. She went uh, with the Black Keys' Dan Arbach as kind of the unconventional choice as a producer. Here's a track from the record. It's called Brooklyn Baby from Lana Del Rey on Sound Opinions. They say I'm too young to love you I don't know what I need They think I don't understand The freedom land of the 70s That is Brooklyn Baby by Lana Del Rey from album number three, Ultraviolence. A nod there, Greg, to the Droog's favorite pastime in A Clockwork Orange. The irony being that there is uh, very little violence of any sort that Lana Del Rey is not inflicting upon herself. It's been said that this young woman is a huge gift to critics because, you know, it it stirs up that debate. The postmodern irony of this character she's invented, the post-feminism of her retro 40s, 50s, tough dame throwback character, the question of authenticity, and none of it is really worth getting into because the bottom line is she's boring. Lana Del Rey cannot sing, and Auerbach here abandons the hints of hip-hop that we heard on Born to Die. It's not here this time. We have pre-rock and roll, late 40s, early 50s, cocktail lounge schmaltz, not a sound anybody's running to remember, mixed with a little bit of uh, Ennio Morricone spaghetti western ambience, and this tired routine from her lyrically, I am a bad girl attracted to bad boys who treat me very badly. It's retrogressive. It's not original. It's not done with humor. I give this a trash it. I wish we had a lower rating than a trash it because I would go there. Well, the one thing I'm going to say about Dan Arbeck's production is that I do think he made some tweaks that point her in an interesting direction. He stripped back some of the instrumentation. That uh, last record was pretty lush, very orchestrated. That's still true to a degree on the new one, but uh, there's moments where it's pretty exposed also, you know, kind of a vulnerability peering through. All the pretty stars shine for you, my love. Am I that girl that you dream of? You 
sort of see some kind of a persona poking through that isn't this actress role that she's been playing for the last couple of records. And it is an acting job. I but, mean, you know, it's still boring. It's still flawed well, and is ponderous, and she cannot sing and doesn't match that kind of production. What I'm trying to say, though, is I think I'm interested in this type of performer, and normally it would intrigue me. There were moments on all, both of Lana Del Rey's last two records where I thought, this is kind of fascinating. It, it reminds me of that Julie Cruz thing in Twin Peaks or something that Hope Sandoval might have done in Mazzy Star or some of the This Mortal Coil stuff with Liz Fraser of Cocktail Twins. It's that same kind of trip-hoppy, murky, orchestrated vibe. It, that's interesting to me. But this actress role where you're, you're sort of doing a parody of this, you know, Pulp Fiction doing a parody of B-movies. But the difference is that Pulp Fiction is great art, and this isn't great art. I agree with you. It's a trash it record. So that's two trash hits from us for Lana Del Rey. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Well, Jim, next week, no trash it records guaranteed from us. We've got the best records of 2014 so far. We want to thank Andrew Gill and Mary Gaffney for helping with Angel Olson. Sound Opinion senior producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, and our production assistant is Anthony Martinez. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, it's Jeremy Shatton from New York City, and I'm calling about the Rock Docs episode. I think you guys had a 50% success rate, which isn't bad when you think about it, but I really thought Fox was so far off the mark. And if you wanted to recommend a female vocalist-based record that would work in that situation, I would strongly recommend Auto Mechanic by Jenny O. This is a criminally underrated record from last year. Driving, melodic songs, fantastically produced by the great Jonathan Wilson with lots of little sonic details, strong emotional content, but nothing abrasive. It's just a great record. And I really think that the surgeon would love it. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, my name is Greg from Lincoln Square. Just heard your great interview with Richard Thompson. Wanted to comment only that I seem to be in the minority in that I think Richard's best album by far is Mirror Blue. That thing, probably he doesn't even like it. I know most other people don't. But that thing I first heard on the radio by chance while driving down a rainy nighttime road stayed with me ever since. Desert Island material to me. That's all I wanted to say. Thanks a lot. Bye.
Hi, my name is Doris Oppenheimer Barton. I really enjoyed your program that featured a live interview with Richard Thompson. I sort of discovered him back in 92 with Rumor and Sigh, and I got to hear him open up in Brooklyn for David Byrne, and I thought that he should be the main act, but he did perform several songs with David Byrne, of course, the uh, height being Psycho Killer. We are vain and we are blind. I hate people when they're not polite. Psycho Killer, qu'est-ce que c'est? He's always spot on. And he's a phenomenal songwriter as well as a performer who always has a sense of who he is and his songs just speak to that. And you did a wonderful job interviewing him. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. It's Ray from Newark, Delaware. I just wanted to thank you for that Richard Thompson experience. My recollection is buying Henry the Human Fly oh, so many years ago, just out of a chance, seeing the cover and wondering what the dickens this was. And songs like Nobody's Wedding and so many great ones over the years. Uh, man, is so prolific. It's just remarkable. When it's nobody's wedding, nobody's Have a great show. Really appreciate it. Look forward to my Monday nights with you. Bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.